This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor John Keane. John is a Professor of Politics at the University of Sydney and founder of the Sydney Democracy Network. He joined me to discuss his recent book, The New Despotism. We talk about the anti-democratic practices of despotic governments sweeping the globe. We also talk about the related issues that democracies are currently facing, including disillusionment and dysfunction. So I welcome John Keane now, political thinker and expert on all things democracy and despotism. Hi there, John. Hi, I'm very glad to be with you. It's great to have you on the show and thanks for your patience in this time. We have a few more technical difficulties than normal during the coronavirus, but it's so great to be with you via Skype. Uh, congratulations on this book, by the way, which is uh, a really great read. And I know it is uh, technically for an academic audience, given the publisher, but it is very much accessible to anyone who wants to read it. Yeah, I tried to, to write it beautifully, Amy, and um, it's a pretty gloomy subject, but uh, uh, there are quite a few jokes in it, uh, which I um, think will make readers laugh at some of the absurdities of uh, uh, of the regimes that I'm trying to, to analyze. Uh, you know, it's a book that uh, talks about Russia, China, Kazakhstan, Saudi Arabia, Hungary, Singapore, Vietnam, uh, uh, and quite a few other. And there are moments in, in these regimes that are Alice in Wonderland moments. Uh, and you really have to, to chuckle, you know, shouting sheep and talking flowers and all that. Um, so, for example, I tell the story of, of uh, uh, Prime Minister Edoyan in Turkey, who keeps saying that the rise of Turkey won't be blocked by anybody but God. And he... He, you know, it's 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 ludicrous, but it's said often. Or I tell the story, um, probably not known to listeners, about Kim Jong Un. Uh, on every uh, visit, uh, state visit that he makes outside of North Korea, uh, you may not know that his feces and his urine are bagged up because he's a paranoid uh, about you know being tested by by other countries. Um, but the book. Uh, is aside from the jokes and the the Alice in Wonderland moments, the book is about a pretty serious subject: uh, the rise uh, of uh, a new kind of power that I call despotism. Uh, and what I try to do in this book is to bring some uncommon sense uh, <laughs> to 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 grasping what's at stake here. Yes, very nice segue or tie in there. And um, you have been looking at, interestingly, democracy for such a long time, and that is very much linked in with this discussion of despotism. And you talk and compare about the two and the tensions and also the expectations on um, from the West, quote unquote, of these types of countries that you describe as despotic and, and and having the characteristic features of despotism and the expectation that they're in this kind of transition period, that they will eventually kind of find the light and um, 
you know, move into the promised land of liberalism and democracy. Could you talk with us about, um, first up, just for people who may not be, you know, um, introduced to the world of political theory, when we're talking about democracy in this context and democratic governments and processes, what do we really mean by that? Uh, I mean, to put things very, very simply, um, a way of life and a way of handling power, a way of governing governing well, where there is power sharing, uh, where there are free and fair elections, yes, but something much more. There, there is a check and balance of uh, among institutions. There is rule of law. And generally, um, those who exercise power are accountable uh, to citizens. Um, what is, of course, things are not going very well mm. in uh, actually existing democracies. I begin the book uh, with um, a summary account of all the, all the rotten things that are, are going on. Look at what is happening in the United States, for instance. Uh, but what I say in this book is that um, democracies described in this way, I'm thinking of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and, you know, Britain, Germany, France, uh, South Africa, for instance, that democracies um, are not only not doing very well in this period, you know, growing gap between rich and poor, a lot of fake news, a lot of disgruntled people, young people left out uh, from the labor market and so on, that not only all of that is going on, but um, there is the rise of an alternative to power sharing constitutional democracy. And this alternative, uh, which is led by China uh, uh, in, and includes those other states that I mentioned, that, that alternative, which I call despotism, is a serious alternative to power sharing uh, democracy. And what is striking, Amy, um, I tried to uh, explain uh, in good prose in this book, what is striking about these despotisms is their resilience. Um, you know, there is the expectation that, that in the West that if you apply economic sanctions uh, or if you do tough diplomacy work or maybe threaten militarily, they will collapse. I think um, it's the opposite. I think uh, our democracies are now uh, facing a serious 21st century alternative uh, and the reason I use uh, despotism, it's a very old word, to describe these uh, regimes is because they practice, that those who rule in these regimes uh, are very skilled at winning the loyalty of uh, their populations. Uh, there is, these are systems of voluntary servitude, as I, I call it. You know, the middle classes of these despotisms are largely loyal. They go shopping, um, they grumble, uh, but they don't disrupt the regime. And so the idea of the book is that the, this new despotism of these early years of the 21st century is a serious alternative. They're going to be around for a while. So we'd better begin thinking about them. We'd better beginning, begin, you know, practicing some uncommon sense about them in order to um, best defend uh, ways of life that we we consider precious. Uh, they are a threat to democracy, uh, but they're resilient. 
blend. Yes, and uh, I know that China, in discussions I've had with um, other scholars on the different subjects, but it has come up that China sees their model of government and model of governing as a, su- as a success story, particularly because it is across such a vast expanse and such a large population. And it seems like their rationale can often be, well, for such a huge country like ours, something different is needed. Democracy would be a disaster. What are your thoughts yeah. on how China has set this up? Well, if you, I, I think you're absolutely right, Amy. If you look at um, the present dynamic, you know, in this great pestilence that we're living through and suffering by, uh, it all began, it was hatched uh, in China. There's no doubt about that. But um, it then clamped down and it, um, the regime has handled a pestilence. And, you know, the great irony is that... Um, China will be uh, the first country to stand up uh, while much of the world falling down. And yes, at the moment inside China, there is um, a lot of regime uh, uh, news. Some of it is fake uh, and, a, and a strong sense among the middle classes that uh, China has done well during this pestilence. And of course, um, uh, the propaganda points to the United States, which is a basket case. You know, the United States is acting like a wild beast led by, some would say, a lunatic. And, you know, why, why uh, say many Chinese people, you know, why would we ever want that kind of uh, regime? Uh, the question then becomes, and what I try to do in this book at, at some length, is to analyze <clears throat> the sources of resilience of the China model. Uh, which is reflected in Russia and Kazakhstan and Vietnam and other regimes. You know, um, it's not all that straightforward, but uh, the the sources of loyalty to the regime don't expect it to collapse uh, overnight uh, during this period. The sources of, of resilience are, there are many. You know, the state um, has a major welfare program. More than two thirds of GDP uh, is is processed by the Chinese state. Um, all of them, all of these despotisms, China included, have a loyal middle class. All of them cultivate connections among people. In China, it's called guangxi. The Russians call it blood. Uh, you know, everybody is dependent upon everybody else. And Um, It's also important to understand that these despotisms, China included, camouflage violence. Uh, You know, they they kill chickens to scare monkeys, as the Chinese proverb has it. Uh, Violence is stocking masked. China is also a despotism that rules through law. You know, there's lots of talk of law. Look at what they are now passing um, uh, by means of law uh, to deal with Hong Kong and so on. One thing, finally, that's important to understand about these despotisms, and China is the leader of the pack and among the most sophisticated, is the way they they institutionalize learning mechanisms. You know, they learn um, uh, about their mistakes. Uh, they they try to recalibrate um, policies, strategies of governing. So they rely on think tanks. 
Um, all of these despotisms, China included, use uh, uh, public opinion polling agencies using pretty state-of-the-art methodology. Um, Singapore is probably the most advanced case of these learning mechanisms. It has a reach program, for example. In the UAE, in the Emirates, uh, there are happiness forums, you know, <laughs> public forums where people are encouraged, subjects are encouraged to talk about their sources of unhappiness. Uh, and in general, these despotisms, China included, try to build in a measure of accountability. Uh, of uh, They try to build in sunshine into a form of government, which is, of course, top-down. It's anti-democratic. It has, I call these uh, despotisms, phantom democracies, and China is included in this category. So that's all a long-winded way of saying that uh, China has a lot of internal resilience, you know, sources of resilience. Uh, and a period, Amy, where I think the rise of China, the development of something like a Chinese empire, will gallop ahead of that of the United States, and which is suffering uh, in this period. Uh, um, and dysfunctional uh, in many ways, you know, fighting between states and, and Washington and so on. And it's, if that's the case, then um, little Australia is going to have to get uh, smart um, about how we deal uh, with a new despotism of the Chinese kind. Uh, war, I think, Cold War is not a solution. Uh, being smarter uh, is necessary, uh, and I think one of the conditions of getting smarter is to, you know, develop some uncommon sense about um, how uh, the regime, the Chinese regime, actually functions. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting that you brought in there America, and I know um, they are not in the despotic regimes we're talking about at all, but they are, as you say, a basket case, and uh, they seem to be in their own special category at the moment, given how influential and significant they are on the world stage, and yet what they're well, doing is quite uh, concerning. Yeah, there is a sting in the tail of... Um my new book, uh, Amy, mm. uh, halfway through reading it, I expect that most readers, uh, it's not a difficult slog, most readers will begin to say, hmm, that's quite interesting, uh, uh, your description of this and that in these despotisms, because quite a lot of this uh, is going on inside our democracies. Mm. And uh, that is the point of the book to warn that um, unless we get smarter and pay attention, you know, to the, the things that are not going well inside our democracies, that we will drift um, in the direction of these despotisms. And one uh, example of this, I think, is what number 45 is doing to the United States. I don't use his name anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I give you a few examples. All of these despotisms use elections, and there's lots of talk of, of the people. Uh, he does it uh, very well. 
all of these despotisms um, basically dismantle rule of law. You know, they neuter um, the courts. They don't like um, check and balance institutions. And there are many examples where number 45 is doing this uh, in the United States, you know, closing down accountability uh, mechanisms, neutering the Congress. Um, he's now got control of the Supreme Court. Um, and one final example, you know, uh, number 45 is a peddler of, of fake news. Um, he's he's uh, a master of gaslighting, as we call it. And of course, these regimes also do that. So one thought that runs through this book is that if he were reelected, which is now looking likely, uh, um, and continues on this pathway, then the United States uh, no longer uh, can be described as a constitutional power-sharing uh, democracy with free and fair elections. Uh, it's actually, uh, it will have um, many more despotic qualities. And um, it may be that we're witnessing uh, the, the growing grip of that trend in the United States. Uh, I called it a basket case. Um, it's a basket case because it, it, there's a lot of dysfunctionality in the system and a lot of belly aching and so on. But you can see a pattern beginning to crystallize where um, democracy will be no more in the United States. And that, that would be of uh, immense historical importance. One thing is clearer. I think, until probably five years ago in Australia, politicians and journalists and uh, some citizens used to say that uh, our priority is the American alliance because the American way of life is ours. Well, as each day passes, I think that's less and less true. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And we did see uh, over the weekend... But perhaps I'm just... Perhaps I'm just um, uh, 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 pre to the converted because down there in Victoria, you know, with um, with with uh, comrade Dan, Dan <laughs> uh, your premier, uh, you know, you, you've 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 you're you're developing developing, let's say, some uncommon sense about um, uh, regional and global geopolitics. Mm. I would say, uh, and it's a breath of fresh air. I would say. Yes, I have seen a lot of memes about the People's Republic of Victoria, which is. <laughs> amusing but um it, it, it is getting a bit silly because the the media are actually starting to use uh liberal national attack lines like dictator dan which is um you know funny but not that helpful but you do point out a really good uh area of follow-up and one that i was interested in before we move into um some of these uh, examples you have in the book. I wanted to ask about how you see America then. I mean, they do have these despotic qualities, but we even saw over the weekend Secretary of State Mike Pompeo saying that potentially America could just disconnect from Australia if Victoria's plan to uh, proceed with the Belt and Road Initiative with China goes ahead. I mean, that was quickly backtracked, but the, America seems to have these strange thought bubbles that really are making them look more and more like a pariah state in comparison to what they used to be under the Obama administration. Yep. And I wonder how do we char characterise America when it 
engages in these kind of crazy behaviours? Well, um, I think that uh, in my work I've been writing and um, trying to say that uh, there were three uh, democratic empires in the history of democracy. Athens, uh, revolutionary Napoleonic France, and the United States. Uh, and um, it's no accident that um, the ideals of liberal democracy uh, with an American accent, uh, uh, you know, were part and parcel of the past generation because the United States um, functioned as a global empire. Of course, in competition with the, with, uh, the Soviet Union, it collapsed in uh, 1989 to 91 for a brief period the united states was um uh the only the only game in town uh that's no longer the case what i try to say in this book is that these new despotisms are now a serious alternative to that of um, american imperial power and what i think uh we're beginning to see uh slowly and probably irreversibly, is the crumbling of that empire. Um, no longer uh, particularly uh, popular in Europe. An mm. empire that has basically uh, withdrawn from large parts of the Middle East uh, during a pestilence. No relief efforts championed by the United States. China, yes. Um, a lot of of internal fighting inside of the empire, um, a lot of uh, many signs of decadence, you know, the growing gap between rich and poor, um, a disaffected population, you know, at least half of Americans uh, in the course of the last two months have lost income uh, or personally or someone in their household has lost income. Uh, in an already squeezed uh, situation um, with a demagogue, you know, at the helm. Lots of talk of the people. Well, uh, I'm beginning to think I'm not the only one that what we are witnessing is um, the the decadence of an empire that, that no longer uh, is able to govern globally and is now faced with a self-confident uh, China that um, is outpacing the United States, even technologically. An example, uh, you know, there is pressure, there has been pressure here and in the UK and in other contexts to boycott uh, Huawei and its 5G technology. Actually, Huawei um, no longer needs um, American technology and it will, it will thrive without the United States. That is one marker, I think, of uh, of the the weakening of the United States. And of course, this has implications for democracy because it was once um, proudly the guardian of democracy. Since 2016, um, number 45 almost never mentions the word. You know, he's not interested in uh, uh, what, its fate. Uh, as a set of ideals um, elsewhere in the world. And that's a sign, I think, of this uh, crumbling of a global power. And 
uh, we need to pay attention to that because it has implications for how we are going to um, behave, how we're going to operate, how we're going to thrive in, in the Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, exactly. We have neighbours all around us who we should be engaging with and um, probably at a more culturally aware level as well than where we currently are at. Um, yes. In, yeah, in terms of one of the quotes I really like, which I think is um, a good spring point into these uh, despotisms, new despotisms, is that you say the new despotisms are in fact reactions against the ideals and practical mistakes and failures of power-sharing democracy. They are yeah. like parasites feeding upon democracy's present dysfunctions. As such, they are not to be judged as cases of failed transition. And so if we're looking then to these alternate models that are uh, broadly characterised as a new despotism, because as you say, this is very new, Um, you highlight a bit later on the fact that uh, it is essentially something new under the sun. Uh, They have roots in the past, but they are definitely not what our forebears knew. So if they're they're rooted in the past, but they are not um, what we might associate with traditional language and concepts of despotism, in terms of the examples you give in the, the book, maybe we can take China or Russia because there's some you know pretty big examples that people might be familiar with. How do we um, examine their behaviours and understand, as you say, where the resilience comes from and how these have become over time a viable alternative and a reaction against democracy? Well, I would say, you know, uh, try to read the book, wouldn't I? Uh, I, I think, um, I think, first of all, Amy, it's a, a, a great question. I think that it's important um, for listeners to understand that what's new about these uh, regimes, the kind of power that they manage, that they embody, is that they're not describable uh, through old-fashioned terms. They are not tyrannies. You know, a tyranny is when you have a very, uh, you have a single leader who rules um, in fear uh, over their subjects. China is not a tyranny. Russia is not a tyranny in this sense. They are not, uh, nor are they autocracies, uh, you know, the rule of one. Uh, Because what I trying to show in the book is that, you know, at all levels, uh, from top to bottom, uh, people are connected and entangled, and um, all of them are kind of caught up in a soiled solidarity. You know, everybody suffers compromise, as the Russians say. They are not dictatorships uh, of, uh, and certainly not tin pot dictatorships of the kind, you know, that Mugabe represented in Zimbabwe. Uh, They're much more efficient. Uh, they're much more orderly. They're much less violent, apparently. Um, and, and they're much better at solving problems. And they're also not fascist regimes. I think, you know, there's a bit of an upsurge uh, in popularity of that word. To describe fascist Russia or fascist, you know, China. I think this is a misdescription of how they operate. Uh, they're not totalitarian. Uh, for instance, um, these regimes, these despotisms are not regimes where millions of people are afraid. They don't feel that. That's not felt uh, in China. And, 
and that was a characteristic of fascism uh, in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and fascism in that period also required mass mobilization uh, of millions of people, you know, big rallies with uh, torchlight. Uh, uh, actually, what I show in this book is that these despotisms encourage passivity. Uh, they like uh, their loyal subjects to go shopping in Turkey. Uh, during 20 years of Erdogan's rule, uh, the number of uh, shopping malls has increased by eight times. Um, they are regimes that allow belly aching, and there's a lot of it, uh, and a lot of it happens online. Um, but they discourage uh, mass rallies. They discourage uh, formation of groups. They don't like civil society. Um, so there's something other. Uh, so they're not autocracies, they're not dictatorships, they're not totalitarian regimes. Um, and and, uh, and so the point of the book is to try to describe and to explain why it is that we should think with fresh, um, with fresh thoughts and with, uh, with, with a different pair of eyes uh, to, make, to make a different sense of, of, of how they function. Because to repeat, uh, they're going to be around for a while. And they are, I think, a serious alternative to power-sharing uh, democracies. And in this respect, Amy, I think um, we're living through a period that's analogous to the 1920s and 30s, uh, when parliamentary electoral democracies were confronted uh, by serious alternatives. Um, Stalinism, uh, fascism, and imperial Japan, and parliamentary democracy uh, almost didn't survive. Uh, by 1941, there were only 11 parliamentary democracies left on the face of the earth. Um, I think this challenge uh, to power-sharing constitutional democracies with rule of law and free and fair elections and where there is a sense of citizens' um, equality I mean, I think all of those ideals and those institutions are now threatened uh, and threatened in a way as um, the threat is as great uh, as it was in the 20s and, and 30s. I think I think uh, historians will look back on this period and see that something very major developed. Well, of course, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, one of the points of this little book, uh, which has a cover with dark, gloomy clouds on it, one of the points of this, the key point really of this book is, uh, you know, it's a precautionary tale. It's basically saying, wake up, you know, have a look around you, uh, dear reader, dear citizens, and and try to make sense of, uh, you know, this alternative, which is a serious, a serious threat, a serious alternative to ways of life that that uh, we love. Mm. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. And um, what I am grateful for with this book, and I'm sure I could probably speak for a number of frustrated historians, is that looking at the public discussions around these issues and what you are terming despotic governments, we see all of those 
terminology thrown about that, you know, totalitarianism, fascism, populism, and Nazism even. uh, And there's a real, um, I think we're doing ourselves not only a disservice, but we're being very, very inaccurate if we can't find the right language and concepts to identify what we're dealing with. We won't actually be able to deal with it appropriately if we keep on banding about terminology that was created in response to a very specific 20th century context. Yeah, I very much agree. Um, uh, you, you may have noticed, uh, Amy, in the opening pages of the book, I uh, crack a little joke uh, by saying that despots could actually read this book <laughs> and, and learn a lot about how better uh, to to rule the despotism. And, and I make um, a reference to... Uh, a fantastic book in the late 30s by probably he was the best Italian uh, anti-fascist writer, Ignazio Siloni, uh, who wrote, I think, in 1938 uh, and published a book called A School for Dictators, which is about an American who comes to Europe who wants to know how fascism uh, works and how it can be built because the American wants to go back to the United States and, you know, basically become a president, a fascist president. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, It's a... Uh, you know, it's it's a serious, ironic uh, book. Mine is in a way the same. You know, I, I'm I'm I, I think you know the 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 prime minister prime minister Lee's of the world, Singapore, uh, a leader with a million Facebook followers. Uh, the prime minister Lee's of this world can learn a lot uh, from this book because I tried to be very accurate in. In how it is in you know in in the in the detail how it is that they function? How is it that they are resilient and stay much more stable than we imagine? Yeah, and I think a lot uh, of people... But, but, but looked from, you know, flipping that over, uh, um, the aim of the book, to repeat, is to to sharpen, you know, the the, the sense of, of, of people uh, who read this book uh, of what's at stake and why it is that they are a threat um, to, to power sharing. Democracy. Mm. I, I wanted to touch on one other element that you've brought up, which was individualism and that element um, within new despotism. And you make references to Alexis de Tocqueville and his kind of early, very, very early predictions about a modern form of democratic despotism, which would really yeah. look at um, being, it would be backed by, as you say, a bourgeoisie and its selfish individualism and live for today materialism and the coming despotism would encourage quote citizens to enjoy themselves provided that they think only of enjoying themselves so i mean that is an interesting point that you make and you do say that um essentially these sheepish middle class would be plump and ready for despotism what how do you um when you're looking at this new despotism see the role of keeping an individualist or materialist society as part of that yeah, it's a double-barreled uh, question, I think, Amy. I think um, one has to do with uh, the middle classes. Um, you know, there is a story, there is an interpretation about that says that um, if you don't have a middle class, you can never have democracy. You know, there is, it's been a long-standing uh, idea in the human sciences that, that the middle classes are prone uh, to prefer free elections and, and power sharing, rule of law, democracy. 
These despotisms show that's not the case. Um, and in fact, their obsequience, you know, their, their subservience to the whole regime is very striking. Um, they travel, they read, um, they're definite internet users, very active on Weibo and so on. Uh, but they, and they grumble, uh, but they do little to disrupt the regime. And um, one of the major challenges, uh, gauntlets thrown down in this book is to, is to get at why it is that these middle classes are subservient, why it is that they're, if you like, agents of voluntary servitude. Uh, about individualism, second point, I think um, in the book I point out uh, there's a strange paradox, which is that um, the ruling, the ruling languages um, emphasize the importance of solidarity. You know, there's a, lots of appeals to the nation, the national pride, um, to ancient traditions, uh, to the importance of economic growth, uh, the importance of, of political loyalty, um, even lots of talk of the growing importance of environmental responsibility. You know, there's a sort of dog's dip of languages that the rulers of these despotisms peddle. Uh, and um, they don't peddle individualism. That's very rare. Uh, but the paradox is that when you look inside these despotisms, when you uh, do um, uh, a, a kind of anatomy of them, as I've tried to do in this book, you find that there is a lot of pushing and shoving. Uh, there's a lot of uh, greed at various levels. There is uh, there there is an individualism uh, for all the talk in China of the importance of the family and solidarity, when you get on the roads in Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou, you realize just how anarchic, you know, Chinese people on the other hand are in the way that they drive. Uh, so it's a paradox that you have, you know, in these despotisms, you have lots of official talk of, of, of uh, solidarity and of, of, of you know, bind uh, people together, uh, and on the other hand, a lot of uh, selfish individualism, and that was Tocqueville's point. Uh, you know, he he was the Frenchman who came to America in the 1830s, and he wrote one of the classics uh, of politics uh, in the modern world called Democracy in America. It's two volumes, and yes, as you say, he he worried that self. Selfishness um, and not giving a shit about other people could easily uh, destroy democracy, um, and uh, and paradoxically, you know, selfishness could could be combined with despotism. That point is a very important point in uh, that runs throughout this book. Mm. Um, so you bring us to our final question, I think, which is, uh, you, I was reading through the conclusion again of this book, and you were talking about a monitory democracy 
and uh, the fact that it's a radical vision of public scrutiny and restraint of unaccountable power through checks and balances. Citizen participation, as you can see, it's not just about the individual, but everyone participating together. And you say that a lack of monetary democracy is the greatest weakness of despotic power. And I just wanted to pick up on that and say, first up, I mean, it probably is fairly obvious how it could be a weakness, but I'd like to understand how you think it might be. And also maybe finally, if you could provide a reflection on who or what country or are there any countries where this idea of a monetary democracy is obviously not perfect, but is um, not seeing that this same level of decline and mistake and uh, disaster decline that we that you have talked about and you reference in the introduction. Are there countries that are providing some um, positive hope for the other participatory participatory democracies like Australia and the rest? Oh, I love. I love your big questions, Amy. Uh, <laughs> I'm not letting you off easily, am I? No, I, I, I mean it's only it's only um, just before eleven o'clock in the morning here in <laughs> in Sydney. Uh, but thank you very much. I uh, I think I think um, a couple of points. Monetary democracy, not to be confused with monetary democracy, that sometimes happens. Uh, I mean, I've been working for for some years on this idea that um, from the 1940s, there was, uh, uh, there was uh, uh, a sea change in democracy. So it came to mean um, something more than free and fair elections uh, because of the experiences of the first half of the 20th century. And democracy came to be redefined and still today at its best means not only free and fair elections, but, um, but public accountability of those who exercise power, whether in the corporate world or whether in the field of government or in the field of, of organizations like Amnesty or Greenpeace, let's say. Um, monetary democracy is, you know, the permanent public scrutiny and control of uh, power that can be abusive and can produce great evils. One thing that's uh, striking about all of these despotisms is that they try to simulate um, public monitoring of power. And I've mentioned already examples, um, you know, their reliance on think tanks and public opinion polling agencies and, um, and, and happiness forums and so on. But in general, uh, one conclusion of this book is that um, there is, they, they suffer a deficiency uh, of, uh, of this uh, open public scrutiny. Case in point, if you look, uh, you know, I was I was teaching in Wuhan uh, in the first two weeks of August. Uh, I survived. Here I am. Uh, if you look at what happened in late December and early January in uh, Hubei province, where Wuhan is the largest city, you see an example of how when you have scrutiny of power that's permitted, uh, that flourishes, and where um, uh, wrongdoers are brought to account, you see an example of what happens when you don't have monetary democracy. And what I think your listeners uh, know uh, very well is that it was in Wuhan, 
uh, and then elsewhere in the province, that there was a clampdown. Um, doctors uh, were, were muzzled. Uh, scientific reports, um, the first analyses of the virus that were done in Shanghai, for example, were suppressed. And the party clamped down. Uh, it behaved like a despotism does. Uh, and what it and why did it do that? Because it didn't want to spoil Chinese New Year coming up at the end of uh, January, and most importantly, because the Hubei Party had two major meetings uh, between the first week, the end of the first week of January, and around the 16th or 17th of January, so it clamped down. And what we now know uh, from independent Chinese reports is that had the party actually moved uh, to deal with the virus in the first week of January, then probably 90% um, of cases of the virus in China uh, would have been prevented. So uh, here the moral of the story I'm trying to tell is that if you don't have open public scrutiny of power, not only, not just elections, but if you don't scrutinize, you know, a government or a corporation, uh, then you can expect trouble. You can expect um, uh, little or big uh, evils. And in the book, uh, in the dying pages, as you rightly point out, I, I, I lay on the table this point and say that it is their greatest weakness. But the flip side uh, of uh, this is that potentially the greatest strength of democracies is to cultivate um, mechanisms of uh, the monitoring, the public monitoring of, of power. Case in point, uh, I, it's not a party political point, but I think uh, that the formation of a national cabinet in Australia for the first time since colonization uh, has been effective because it brought to the table uh, discussion um, with the national government uh, of Morrison. Uh, it brought to the table open, frank um, accounts of what was going on in um, our states and territories. And it forced onto the table open discussion and bargaining uh, and agreement about how to handle uh, this uh, virus. And of course, uh, by global standards, and it's we're up there with Taiwan uh, and with South Korea and New Zealand. Um, all four cases are examples where uh, of, of democracies where if you have that open public scrutiny of power, you have honesty, you don't have leaders who are um, peddling bullshit uh, and gaslighting uh, uh, others. When you have that open public scrutiny of power, you can better handle challenges challenges of this kind. I think Taiwan um, and New Zealand, South Korea and Australia show that when you have that um, uh, monetary democracy, then you can get, you can steer, you know, uh, uh, your way through uh, a challenge uh, and a serious crisis of this kind. Uh, we're not through it yet. Um, what's coming is, of course, potentially uh, another great depression, uh, which might, you know, the book was completed before all of this, uh, but it might be that a potential Great Depression 
you know, radically weakens um, democratic institutions in, in many, many countries. The fact that we've had emergency rule uh, in uh, practically every democracy, uh, except Taiwan, um, uh, for instance, uh, is this emergency rule is a threat uh, to power sharing constitutional democracy. Uh, we're going to see what happens, but um, in short, you know, democracies are not yet dead. Uh, there's a lot of life left in them. Um, and, and the the prize uh, uh, will go to those democracies that actually in this crisis, you know, develop new mechanisms for handling the crisis, mechanisms of openness, of accountability. And I think I think the national cabinet is uh, is uh, is one example uh, of this in which Victoria uh, has played a, a very important role. Uh, I think that's clear. Yes, I would agree with you on that one. Um, I may be biased, but I also think it is very obvious that um, I know a lot of Victorians have really been turning to their premier and um, local state cabinet as well. So we have been pretty proud to be Victorian. Um, John, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating speaking with you. And as you said, read the book because um, we've really scratched the surface and you go into a huge amount of detail and nuance. Well, uh, Amy, it's my pleasure. Um, I hope that I've not given your uh, listeners uh, nightmares tonight. <laughs> but I, you know, I urge you, I urge um, you all to to read uh, this book. It's not not uh, an academic book. Uh, I tried to write it um, with elegance and and as I say, with jokes and uh, and a lot of detailing of of how things actually work. That. You know, it's a sort of literary technique of bringing to life mm. uh, what could be a pretty dull subject. But um, it's been my pleasure, uh, Amy. Thank you. I do think you achieved your goal. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.